Yes, you are listening to Behind the Lens. Yes, you like you like that. I love that entrance. That you great. like you like Jar Jar, and you know Brian. We lost headphone again. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah, that's better. Yes. Oh, welcome to another fun week of Behind the Lens. I, I'm thrilled today because Jar Jar Binks, uh, as many of you know, the voicing is actually done by my good friend Steve Alaric. Oh. Steve play, actually played Simba on Broadway. Get out. In The Lion King. Yeah. But when he had to audition, they wanted to know what could he do to set him apart. Mm-hmm. And he could do the voice of Jar Jar Binks. And Good that's you. what he did for an audition. Wow. Yeah. So, and of course, I am beyond thrilled. So I have Steve's talents with Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> but oh, the wonderful Byron Bean is back. Hello. Yay. <laughs> this is very exciting. It's been a while because Byron uh, lives in New York. Mm, that's true. But and it was one of the nicest messages that I have that I have gotten in a long time when he said, "Hey, can I come po- co-pilot your show? I'm yeah, going to be in town." I would love to do it. I love being here with you. And I love having you here. <laughs> I love having you here. This is so much fun. Yes. So what the heck have you been doing? Still up to producing and talent managing. A uh, handful of clients, creative production, which I love, as you know. Yeah, um, yes, you, and you're I good at it. love it so much. And um, dealing with a lot of new media stuff, web series, which is all the craze now. And um, it's great. I love it. And, you know, we had your clients on before. Yeah, it was awesome. Miss Erin Fritch, who yes. I believe was from the web series Living the Dream. Yeah. And, yeah, it was awesome. She She loved it and... Hopefully and, there'll be more. And the series, I th- I just thought was adorable. I love the series. It's still and they're still in the works for season two. The so, season two. Yeah. She said they were, that it was going to be a while. Oh yeah, it's going to be a little bit of time, but it's, yeah. Well, there's it's this the thing. There's this thing called scratch money, that kind of stuff. Yes, that, comes that into play. you unfortunately need to continue. So yeah, no, that's <sighs> no, no, that that just doesn't doesn't do so. Do any of your clients have anything exciting coming up? Yeah, well, not coming up, but we have um, we have some stuff bubbling. I wish I could talk about it now, but it's it, there's some things that are that are some really exciting stuff that's coming up as far as um, series regulars on pilots and nice. test deals. Yeah, so we'll um, hopefully I'll have more information for you later, but we'll see. Now you know you cut down your roster of clients. Yes. Does this now enable you? Because I know a lot of people. And I'm talking to people out there like you, Kendra Montagna. Um, <laughs> Hi, Kendra. <laughs> you know, who and, you know, a lot of the, of the girls um, over who work at um, the backstage in Culver yeah. City. Yep. And they go through looking for managers and looking for agents. Yeah. And then they sign because they get all these promises. Oh, we're going to send you out. You're going to oh, get attention. Yeah. And then nothing. They don't even get calls. They don't get. And, and they feel very neglected by cutting down your roster instead of branching it up with a bunch of names just so i've got 30 clients or something Mm -hmm. do you find it much better in terms of establishing relationships and keeping them to have a smaller client base i do i mean you know in that instance when people are sitting around sort of waiting for the phone to call or waiting for someone to call them with an appointment it's it's tough. I mean, you know, it's sort of a two-way street. Managers have their job that they're doing behind the scenes. Actors are doing their job behind the scenes. No one really gets to see what each other's doing. So it's a little tough to see what's what's going on. But as far as paring down my client list, I love it because I can give each of them individual attention. And, you know, the relationships that I've formed with casting and some networks uh, is great. And it's easier for me to go to them with a select few instead of saying, hey, I have four of one type now i have you know i can go individually with one type and say Mm -hmm. hey look this is the person that you really need to see because of her credits and um i find it more beneficial to do it that way than to just take on 50 40 clients as one manager i just don't i mean kudos to people that do that and i know that they're great at their job and they can do that that's just not how 
I can well, do that. I can't focus that way. <laughs> you are very much a people person, and you're a very caring and considerate person. You want to oh, you, you want to do a good job. Yeah. You don't want to schlock anything. Right. And I know your work ethic in terms of if if you're representing these people, you want to give them the best representation you can. Yeah, of course. It doesn't benefit either of us if the intention's not being given on that side. You know, it just really means that that person's sitting back and collecting a paycheck, which at the end of the day is not, like I said, beneficial for either party. So, And somebody's always left unhappy. Someone's always left unhappy, yes. And, and unemployed. Well, that, yes. <laughs> Ugh. Hope that's not the case, but yes. And I know poor Brian is sitting in the booth, and at the mention of Kendra's name, I saw his his ears perk up. <laughs> you know, Ken, Kendra has been down here a couple times, but then her her real life work schedule interrupted mm. her ability to come down on Mondays because she likes hanging out down here too. Yeah, it's fun. It's great. I love it. Yeah. So yes, Brian. You know what I'm excited about? What are you excited about? Is that I grew up on. Those books that you have right there on the on the desk. Oh, a good transition. Well, you. we I wasn't getting to them quite yet. <laughs> no, so. I know, but I just I, I keep looking at them and I didn't know they were doing full color. Well, there's a movie coming, so we're going to talk about that in a moment. I can't wait. No, but before <laughs> we we before we get to that, besides Byron being here today, we also have calling in a a new writer director. Stanley Jacobs. Yes. Stanley has a film that is coming out this Friday. It's it's already available on iTunes and Amazon called 96 Souls. Mm-hmm. It is beyond intriguing premise. For all you filmmakers out there, there are some really nifty and very cool uh, uh, visual effects and the cinematography using color plus using sound. Yeah, it's magical. And, you know, we're going to talk to Stanley because I'm curious because of the fact he shot on the Red Dragon and the Red Epic. And the Red wow. Dragon let him use the Leica uh, some Micron C, which is a very cool, lightweight, like it's a four-inch lens, but it gives you the full spectrum Cool in filming. Is so, that, is that, now is that like the, because forgive me on that, it's a little Greek to me, but it, is that like the, the, the newest? That's one of the new small cinematic lenses that's out there and the red dragon is a very very cool camera sounds it's a very cool camera (laughs) uh and then he was also shooting with the red epic and of course the good old standby zeiss primes okay so which you can never go wrong with a zeiss prime in shooting and Mm -hmm. given the effects he has the visuals in the film i'm curious as to his selection for you know for the those lenses with the cameras but uh, so it's going to be interesting talking to Stan. And of course, added bonus for me, I'm watching the film and we get three quarters. We're in the third act. And then lo and behold, Philip Kelly pops up on screen. Another friend of mine who's an actor and Philip pops up playing uh, an assistant in a mental institution. Interesting. Okay. He has dialogue. He has very cool, very cool representation in the end ti- in the end title credits, yeah. which are all beautifully done. Um, you know, using the colors that we see pop up throughout the film. Yeah, which is ethereal and magical, and it's yeah, it's and itself. this is carried through. You know, kind of like you know a graphic novel kind of look for the mm-hmm. end title. Mm-hmm. So it's really. So that was real. That was very exciting to see, and I posted on Facebook about it. It's like, oh my god! And Phil immediately he saw he saw he goes, yes, you saw me, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, and you even got dialogue. It means you get more money. Um, right, exactly. Everyone wants that. Everybody wants to speak. <laughs> you know, which you know now that's an interesting that has that has pondered bothered me since May fourth. What's that? Tony Geary's surprise appearance on General Hospital to help usher off Jane Elliott's character of Tracy. Okay. After her 40 years on the show, he pops up, never says a word. Oh. It's just a final scene, a final shot. Maybe that, well, yeah, maybe that's what, I don't have no idea for that one. Maybe that's yeah, what it's like. For. It's weird. Well, it it really worked because they hadn't seen each other, you know, when he left the show a few years ago. Got it. Yeah, so they He went off to Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. Of course, now they have her leaving, going off on her own. Mm-hmm. She doesn't need to make peace with the family anymore with the Quartermains and she goes to Amsterdam to sell this painting that her father left her. 
that brings her $60 million or something. Such drama. Yes, but it happens to be in Amsterdam. <laughs> right, of course. Which is where, last we heard, that's where Luke Spencer had gone. Oh. And we all know that's where Tony Geary moved to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she walks into a coffee shop. The eyes meet, slight smiles, and not a word. So it was the perfect ending. It was yeah, perfect. That sounds... That sounds... But, but I wonder, you right. know, I have to wonder if Tony did this as a favor to Jane, because they've been friends for so many years, to usher her off. Or if he just got scale pay because he didn't say anything. I mean, why not? It's sort of, <laughs> it, it it pieced together everything beautifully. Oh yeah. So maybe maybe it was a little bit of both. <laughs> no, I mean it was, and the social media just exploded. Oh, went crazy! I bet. I bet. Just one shot of yeah. Tony reprising his role of Luke. I wonder how many times that's going to be made into a meme. For there have been a few. Yeah, I bet. Especially for the hair cut that he has. <laughs> And he actually gave an interview, and because people are like, what the heck did you do to your hair? Because <laughs> uh, it's all like lopped over on one side and yeah. kind of shaved on the other, and it's like all the rage in Amsterdam. Oh, apparently, um, the very trendy, ra- fashionable rage. Oh, man, but Gary's uh, the new style icon in Amsterdam. You know, he had tried to like gel the hair to make it look more, but then finally just gave up. And since this magical reunion is set in amsterdam what the heck it fits why not me yeah <laughs> uh, anybody that knows me knows my great love for general hospital since day one i have watched that show i can tell you have followed it very meticulously since, <laughs> since day one yeah hey my grandmother never missed it she actually walked into a doctor's office once and says i know i have this because jesse on general hospital has it oh if my mom used to watch it back in the day, and if I ever had clients on General Hospital auditioning for, it would be more of a thrill for them because they knew that show. Any other show, they'd be like, General yeah. Hospital? Oh, yes, I know that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's like our good friend Scott Barton, who who produces the Stage LA event every year. You know, Scott used to work, uh, you know, in publicity with yeah. General Hospital. Oh, wow. It's like, I think most of the industry, it's at one point or another... You know, it's like Jeffrey Vincent Parisi was on the show. Ian Buchanan has been on the show. Oh. They... <laughs> on this show. Oh, this show. <laughs> this yes, show. okay. I'm making my rounds through the cast. Yeah, you, you got six degrees of General Hospital here. <laughs> you know, well, you know, I know Ian, you know, and, you know, Finola Hughes I've known since we worked together on Staying Alive that mm-hmm. uh, Stallone directed decades ago mm-hmm. with Travolta. Um, I, I want to get Finn on the show one day. I really do. That would be very, yeah. very cool. I'm going to make that happen. I, I really want to. I want to get Finn. I want to get Carolyn Hennessy. Um, would love to get Nancy Lee Grant. Mm, yes. Nancy would. I, that, that's, my, that's my general hospital wish list. Your wish list, yeah. Of guests. Yeah. You know, I don't ask for much in life. <laughs> no. Just a short list of general hospital actors I'd love to have on. But yeah, it's not often I get to talk about general hospital. I know. It's not one of those that you can just slip into any conversation unless it's... No. But, but with somebody who appreciates <laughs> trivial matters like you, you know. I do. And, of course, Brian Brian needs a Carol Cook update. You know, Carol Cook did the show again, our annual show before the Stage LA benefit the other week. Uh-huh. Um, and Carol is such a dear friend. I love her to pieces. Um, it's Brian's favorite call of the year. Like, in, every year, Carol calls... He's shaking for, his head, Yes. <laughs> yeah, he's he. You know, he doesn't understand radio. You gotta there's you, you gotta say yes. <laughs> so yes. But it was but say, yes, there yeah. it is. But it was the look in his eyes. It was the look in his that, eyes. That, that but we have to translate that. Mm-hmm. We have to describe that. Mm-hmm. But Brian knows Carol called while we were on the air last week. She called my cell phone and left me a message. Uh, she called during the week, and we finally hooked up. And every time she leaves a beautiful, beautiful message because I had told her when she did when she did the show. She loves costume jewelry, but the vintage costume stuff. She collects it. Mm-hmm. Well, with my father's estate, which in, we're in eight years of probate now. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, still. Uh, but my brother has finally been sending me all of my mother's jewelry. Oh, wow. Okay. And the bulk of, you know, there wasn't too much fine jewelry. The bulk of it was costume. 
Which nobody else wanted because, oh, it's costume jewelry. Are you well, kidding? Because costume jewelry is where it's what everyone wants, I feel well, like. Well, and the vintage stuff <laughs> yeah, going back to especially. the fifty, the 50s, the 60s. Yep. And I mentioned to Carol, and she goes, oh, I would love to have some of it. And I promised her I would bring her some. So I brought, I picked out select pieces that were some of my mother's favorites. Oh, nice. That I have pictures of her wearing in the 1950s and 60s. Wow. And I took that to Carol. She would not even go out to meet people after the show. She would not go talk to her family until she unwrapped these the boxes that I brought her. That's so I brought sweet. her this a very long strand of black jet, you know, that going like back to the forties. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that she had to put on immediately. Uh but she Who could blame her? <laughs> but she just you know, she is just and every day she's wearing a different piece. That's she's nice. already de- found one piece that is her favorite. Of course. It was probably a hard call, too, I'm sure. No, it right away she fell in love with it. <laughs> she it. And it was one of my mother's favorite pieces, too, which I thought was really amusing. Yeah. But, uh, no, she's going through each pair of earrings. Every day she's wearing something different. Um, there are pins. She loves to wear pins. So she's been wearing that. And she's after she gets through all of it, then she's going to put it together into an ensemble. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like one does. Like one does when you are Carol Cook, the well, legend. <laughs> you Carol Cook, exactly. Yeah, so it, it was. I'm just. I'm so thrilled that Carol is so thrilled. Yeah. And the fact that because I have so much of it, and the fact that somebody is wearing it, it and appreciates also, yeah, it, of course. You know that means a lot. But so that is our Carol Cook update. So, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, but now as Brian alluded to. As Brian alluded to, we have some very special swag today. Very special. I'll even take it out of the tablescape here so that everybody can see it more clearly. Captain Underpants. Captain Underpants is hitting the big screen, people. Woo-hoo. You know, I'm not allowed to give a review on the film. But anybody that knows me knows. Would I be talking about the film if I hated it? Probably not. <laughs> um, we did the press day the other day. Uh, the creator and author of all the books, Dave Pilkey, was there. Wow. Kevin Hart. Kevin, who, of course, voices, let us turn to our notes, who voices the infamous George Beard. Mm-hmm. Thomas Middleditch, who voices Harold Hutchins. Mm-hmm. Oh, here, you can play with the book. I, I've been looking at this, so now uh, yeah, I'm going to... Play with, and see, Dave even, he autographed it to me and drew a picture for me. This is amazing. Isn't it? Um, Ed Helms was there. He played voices Mr. Krupp and Captain Underpants. Um, Nick Kroll voices Professor Poopy Pants. He was not at the press day. Uh, and then director Dave Soren. Anybody that knows Captain Underpants, two fourth graders come up with brilliant ideas and they create their own comic books. And everything is done in a kid's perspective, a fourth grader's perspective in the books. And Byron, since you read them growing up. Oh, well, of course. Um, you know, my nephews, uh, two sets of nephews, the first set came in when the Captain Underpants books were first coming out. The second set of nephews came in, you know, probably 10 years later. Uh, and it was funny at my, at, at my mother's funeral of all places. And I didn't, hadn't thought of this until I was watching the film. Um, the two youngest ones, because they were so young, mm-hmm. they didn't know that she had passed away and they didn't know where Graham was. They had no clue. Well, my aunt and uncle were in from Colorado, and my uncle, apparently, for his own grandkids, he would always pretend to be, this lieutenant colonel in the Air Force would pretend to be Captain Underpants. So he started doing Captain <laughs> Underpants for my two youngest nephews, Eddie and Tommy, uh, at at the dinner, at the diner, after the funeral. I bet they loved it. So, you know, that was their introduction to Captain Underpants. <laughs> but so Captain Underpants, I have very fond memories of, of Captain Underpants experiences. But I have to say, and it's not divulging anything, because if you know Kevin Hart, if you know Thomas Middleditch, if you know the Captain Underpants books, you know why they are both so perfect yeah. to voice George Beard and Harold Hutchins. Oh, and I heard it on the previews. It was, I mean, just watching the previews themselves was amazing. Listening to Kevin's voice was, you can hear it and you know exactly who it is. And you're looking at something so iconic and you're like, yes, this is right. Well, I have a clip from the press conference the other day and where I asked 
Kevin and Thomas about how much of their four-year-old selves <laughs> are in George oh. and Harold. And, of course, Ed Helms had to chime in there about his own <clears throat> heroic youth in preparing for his role. I want to first congratulate all of you. This is just absolutely fantastic, and it surpasses, I hate to say it, it surpasses the fun of all the books. You really elevated it to a new level. I agree. <laughs> Thomas and Kevin, how much, like your characters... Were you in fourth grade? Oh, wow. Especially oh. you, Kevin. Wow. I think the best role you've ever had. Uh, listen, wow. this is, this is, your this is my, honestly, most challenging performance <laughs> at all. Actually, you know what's funny is uh, I think what David was able to do, you know, we... Yes, it's an animation, and yes, it's a kids' movie. But you want to make sure that you're you're grounding, you know, the the performance to a certain level of, of believability within all the fun that you that you're doing. And it was really pulling from a lot of the things you you do in life. And as a kid, I was very much a prankster. I was very much always in trouble because I didn't want to stop laughing. I loved laughing in school and I loved making other people laugh. And, you know, in in school, that's the worst thing that you can do in the class is be the funny guy because nobody's focusing. Everybody's being funny. Everybody's passing around letters and pulling chairs from underneath the teacher. It was just me. But I, I really very much was like my character and I think that's cool that's what was cool about the movie you know and I love the relationship that uh, that Thomas and I had that those characters had because you know in school that best friend is very important you know that, that close friend that you have that you open up to that you're talking to on a different level on a day to day basis you're confiding in a young age that's dope to me I think that's something that kids can relate to that they're going to pull away from this film and, and say I not only understand that I get that but I live that I am that yeah, for him. That, com I, I, that uh, comment was sponsored by Kevin Hart. Yeah, such yeah. A great <laughs> I was also very heroic as a child. Almost constantly nearly nude. I'll just say that I, I agree. I sort of later became sort of a, a jokester in class, but bizarrely, I just realized it the other day. I was like, oh, I had curly hair. I drew comic books, and I like to giggle and laugh. And uh, I probably needed... I probably needed... Uh, a, a George, but I never got one, so <laughs> uh, that was more of a solitary effort. <laughs> but uh, bizarrely, I was a weird kid who liked to draw comics, so that's pretty strange. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just picture a sadder, more lonely Harold Hutchinson. Than now you know why I picked that clip. Yeah. Yes, I do. Oh, that was hilarious. And the fact that they both admit, especially yeah. Kevin, is like, and there's a line in the film where, uh, you know, Kevin's character of George is talking about how we've been friends since kindergarten. Kindergarten. <laughs> kindergarten. And the minute you hear it, you just, Kevin's face pops in your head. Yeah. Uh, it's hilarious. But now for everybody, when you watch the video, you see we even have our official Captain Underpants cape. <laughs> You know, very, very, very lovely. And I have to say, give a huge thank you to Fox and to DreamWorks Animation for the lovely swag with the book and the cape. Yeah. Especially the book. I, You know, I, I get so excited with books. And then to have Dave Pilkey autograph it. Oh, the above and beyond. That, that, means, yeah. that means everything to me. But, you know, we've had some other cool stuff sitting here over the, over the past few weeks for Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, so good. Okay, and while we're playing... All right, let's let's dancing Groot. Yeah, we have dancing Groot. Okay, if I can make it, or did I wear the bat? Oh no, I didn't wear the batteries out. There it is. No way. Uh oh, did I put? Let's see. It's got three settings. Okay, there we go. Nope. Even I think that's the motion sensor. That's the motion sensor yeah. one. Okay. Oh, there it is. Let's put it on that one. Is that one going to work? There it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, there. So, we have Dancing Groot. We have Captain Underpants. It's just like... This is, this is like Halloween. Now I, now I know what I'm going to be for Halloween. Captain Underpants. Maybe. Maybe ba Baby Dancing Groot. Who knows? One or the other. <laughs> yeah. So You see, we, we do behave like juvenile delinquents at times here on Behind the Lens. Yeah. But see, I only get to do this when Byron's in town. Yeah. I mean, 
Every time I come, there's a whole plethora of toys. Well, and of course, then we have the wind-up baby group. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> we have the wind-up dancing baby group. Oops. Stand-up group. There we go. This is awesome. I know. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> yes. We have laughs. There are occasions we have laughs. But, and of course, now that I wound him, he has to dance out. And isn't his face cute? I mean, the this character one. in that movie, too, was I mean, so Groot, good. Groot he, is the best. He, he, yeah. He made the he, he made those scenes. That's the only reason to see the movie is Groot. Baby Groot. Baby Groot. That's it. But, going to a more serious subject, and by the way, Captain Underpants will be in theaters on June 2nd, which actually would have been my grandmother's 120th birthday. Get out of here. It's like destined, you know. Today is like destined. <laughs> Happy birthday, Grandma. Also Captain Underpants. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So, but opening on June 9th, and because last week was Armed Forces Week, Friday was Armed Forces Day, and next Monday is Memorial Day, it seems very fitting. Uh, there is a new film coming out called Megan Levy, based on the true story of Marine Corporal Megan Levy. Canine handler uh, during the the first wave of the Iraq War. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was, I think, the first woman to actually be on the front lines of combat because wow. she was in the canine unit. And as Marines had said, and as Director Gabrielle Copperthwaite, Copperthwaite said to me, it's like they said she was in front of the front line. Wow. Because at that point in time, Canine dogs, the bomb-sniffing dogs, were actually tethered to their handlers. Hmm. That policy has since changed. But so if one went, the other went flying with them. Yeah. Uh, but that both were did suffer injuries. They did Rex, her dog, Megan's dog Rex, and herself did two tours of duty. Wow. Purple hearts for both. Both dog and canine. And, and handler. Amazing. Uh, but then after Megan retired... From the Marines, Rex was still working with other handlers, but she wanted Rex. They had this bond that is incredible, yeah, amazing. I can imagine. And it became the subject of national focus involving Chuck Schumer, of all people, got involved because she wanted to adopt Rex when he was being retired. Oh, wow. And because a veterinarian had written unadoptable in his chart because of injuries he had sustained and a facial palsy he developed, they wouldn't let her. Because what the military used to do prior to 2000 and the institution of Robbie's Law, which became codified in uh, the in uh, the U.S. Code, they would euthanize. They, they, treated oh, the, no. they would treat the canines as property. Like they left them all or killed them or euthanized them in Vietnam. That's terrible, the, yeah. So... What happened, you know, with Robbie's Law in 2000, then it became possible for the military handlers to adopt the dogs. Mm. It's very expensive. You know, you've got to pay for it. And sometimes they're overseas and you've got to pay. To uh, get them out to wherever they are. That's like anybody interested in the war dogs themselves, go to wardogs.org. And it's the whole history of war dogs and the services that are available for soldiers who want to adopt. And if soldiers don't want to adopt... If the handlers don't want to adopt, they are now opening it up to the public can apply to adopt these dogs. That's amazing. But in Megan's situation, went all the way to Chuck Schumer, a whole media campaign, mm. and she was finally, finally got permission to adopt Rex. And he lived with her until the end of his life. That's incredible. And this is their story. I really want to see that now. It is uh, Kate Mara plays Megan Levy. The military precision in this film is amazing. The consultants that were brought in, everything was done with Marine Corps approval, mm. stamp of approval. Uh, so I can't recommend it highly enough. Yeah. Wonderful Turns by Bradley Whitford playing Megan's father. Edie Falco plays her mother. What? Tom Felton, Draco Malfoy himself, plays a very inspirational Senior canine handler. Amazing. I, I, now you've got me on the hook. <laughs> yeah, you have to see it. And I know we have Stan Jacobs on the line, but before we can stand, 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 so, that was so nice of you to call in promptly and early. 
But we're going to keep you on hold one second longer because I want you to hear, because Gabriella Copperthwaite, you all know her from Blackfish. This, Megan Levy is her first foray into the narrative format. And if you've been, and if you're listening to what I'm saying about the film, she very easily could have made it a documentary. But she chose to make, to make a narrative and use this as her narrative launch. Yeah. So I asked her about that, and here's what Gabriella had to say. What really attracted you to Megan's story? You know, I think, um, as you said, I mean, I think it was the... Uh, to be perfectly honest, curiosity is one of the things that dra- draws me to any narrative, to mm-hmm. any story. Um, that's what it was for Blackfish. That's what it was for this. I wanted to um, depict and kind of understand, crack open a female-driven uh, military film. Um, I was curious about what it's like to come up in that world. As a woman, mm-hmm. and especially the Marine Corps, Marine Corps, like we're talking, like boots on the ground, toughest of the tough, and um, so that was fascinating to me too. And then the canine unit, completely fascinating to me, even though I had worked on military and, and Iraq War documentaries before, mm-hmm. um, I n- had never, um, I, I knew nothing about the canine, um, and so it. Uh, so it was really both of those, and I was like, "This, this is a huge opportunity, a unique opportunity, to tell um, a story that we think maybe we've heard before, mm-hmm. like you know, something that happens in country, and and you go through this tough stuff there, um, you know, you you're thrust into a war like situation, and then you come home and have to kind of um, deal with that world, mm-hmm. um, having experienced what you've experienced, and like, but doing it through these two different agents." Right, doing it through a female perspective, and then um, and then understanding the canine unit, right, um, was completely fresh. So, uh, yeah, that that sort of that drove me. And you will hear more from my exclusive interview interview with Megan on our June fifth show. Wow, I'm looking forward to that one. See, and too bad you won't be here. You'll be I back know. in New York. I know. But right now. Do we have Stan? Stan, are you with us? Yes. Hi, Debbie. Nice, nice to hear from you. Oh, Stan, this is an absolute, an absolute pleasure to have you. And I have my co-pilot who flew in from New York <laughs> to do Stan. the show. Byron Bean is here with us. Hey, Byron. Hey. You know, a producer and talent manager extraordinaire, let me tell you. <laughs> but 96 Souls, this is quite... This, I, I can't even find the right word. It is fascinating. It is intriguing. Ethereal. Ethereal. Yes. That's the word you like. Ethereal. Yeah. yeah. There, there are very ethereal moments. And, of course, I have to say, as I was watching the film, all of a sudden in your third act, my friend Philip Kelly pops up on screen, and I went, son of a gun. You didn't know he, he worked at a, a state-run uh, institution, did you? Okay, well, know, knowing Phil, he could be a patient there. You know, I don't know. Um, Phil knows I love him. Uh, but, uh, no, that that was a nice surprise for me. But on top of the fascinating structure of this film, Stan, where did the idea for this film emerge? That's, that's very kind of you, what you, what you said. Well, the... the um I've always uh, been fascinated with with sci-fi, and I knew when I make the fil- when I was going to make the film, I wanted to have a very strong visual component to it. So I kind of wrote the story with those things in mind, you know, thinking that we could do something that an audience would be interested in. And I definitely wanted to ground it in, in reality to some extent, because I, even though it is sci-fi, I wanted the base of it to some, somewhat be believable. So it's, a lot of research was done in that. What kind of research did you do to come up with this? And I'm glad you mentioned your visuals before the show. Byron and I were talking about the visuals, and the visuals are just so striking. Mm-hmm. What you have done with color and your visuals, and then your meld of and your use of sound in the context of these, you know, these moments where our professor Jack Sutri actually can see the essence of people. Um, but this story. 
you know, let the, tell, give the audience a rundown of what the basic premise of this story is and how you developed it in terms of the research that you were doing. Well, Jack Sutry, he's a, he's a, um, a research professor at a, at a university. We, we set the university in Los Angeles. It's a fictitious university, but we sort of imagine it between uh, USC and the, uh, the 110 freeway. And uh, he's, he's uh, many schools around the world are funded by uh, the Bill Gates Foundation. And uh, that's to, it's to help curb the spread of malaria throughout the world, which is a huge killer of um, people. So he's tr- he, the, the thing with research in malaria is that it's sort of based on a chemical analysis of, of um, odors because the mosquitoes are attracted by certain things. You know, people give off carbon dioxide, and they also give off odors, and, and it's a complicated process to figure out wh- why is that and what are they attracted to. So Dr. Stutry's premise was he said, well, if we could visualize the odors, that would make it a lot easier um, to study. And so he goes on this path to do that. And, of course, there's a lab accident while he's doing that, and he's actually able to, to accomplish this. But then there's a personal uh, tragedy that happens in his life, and that kind of affects him, and that transfers that ability to see odors into the ability to see you know, people's true intentions. And it's something he can't control, and he's grappling with it throughout the film, and his funding's at stake, and, and there's a lot of other obstacles that are jumping in front of him while he tries to figure out what's going on. Well, you know, I, ha- I have to, you know, kudos to you for casting Paul Statman as Dr. Redfield. He is at his Ben Kingsley most evil best as uh, a potential monetary source for Jack's research. Um but he has many more self-serving and malevol- malevolent purposes in mind, <laughs> to put yeah, it Paul, nicely. <laughs> yeah, Paul, Paul is great to work with, and um, that, was, that was the thing. You know, there's a lot of research that gets funded by organizations. Now, you want to make sure that there is a, you know, a firewall between the funder and the actual research that goes on. And, of course, there's always questions about that, so I... The film kind of goes into that question and, and play, you know, and examines that whole situation. Yeah. Well, you know, how did you go about casting this particular film? Because you've got Grinnell Morris as who plays Professor Jack Sutry. Um, you've got Sid Vita who plays his very loyal assistant Ram Tamble. Of course, Paul, um, and. A woman that just really leaps off the screen, Toyin Moses, uh, playing Basement Tape. What a performance from her. How did you find this eclectic mix of people? Yeah, I agree. I agree. The, the, the individuals you just mentioned, I think they're hardworking actors that do, you know, theater, commercials, whatever, and they're just waiting to be discovered. And the way I went about it was, um, obviously, when you write a film, you have an ideal cast in mind, and you're always going to the names that we're all familiar with. But the reality, when you do something low budget, is that, you're, first of all, you're constrained by your budget, so you won't have a lot of money to offer. Mm-hmm. And actually, even more important than that, if you did get someone that's, uh, you know, a, a, a celebrity that's really very, very busy, your schedule, the low budget film, winds up being dictated by their schedule, and something could come out of the blue and all of a sudden you've got to change your dates and that could be disastrous for the budget. So I just made that decision early on to to go with people that are just really talented. And I sat down for several months and at that time when I was casting, IMBD just had come out, IMDB had just come out with a casting service. And if you go on there, there are hundreds of thousands of performers that have their sample work online. You can view it all. And so I just painstakingly went through it. it you know, like, as I mentioned, it took several months. I saw thousands of them. I whittled it down to a list. And it's great because you can search geogra- geographic area. You can search if they're SAG. You can search, uh, you know, age range, everything. So I was able to get a, a pretty good list. And then I just looked at the tapes and, and picked who I felt, you know, was, was really good at what they did. And the thing that was amazing is you find out there's a lot of good talent out there. Yes. 
Yeah, you know, well, yeah, and Byron as a producer and a talent manager. Oh, I'm I'm uh, I'm itching to ask you. Did you did you work with a casting director, or did you do this yourself and painstakingly go through all these IMDb profiles? Because that's a lot of work. Yeah, and I didn't have the budget to bring in a, a casting director, and you know, of course, wow. if I was to do this again, I would make sure I would because it was a lot of work. Yeah. And, I, <laughs> and cast, casting directors have their you know finger on the pulse of things, and they mm-hmm. and they can come up with people for you really fast. But yeah, I did it pretty much myself for the leads, and then we did use some local casting services to to get some of the minor leads and some of the extras and things like that. But yeah, I took it on myself because of this low did, budget. Did you have any names in mind, sort of as prototypes for these characters that you were? bringing to life no you know i i didn't do that on purpose i wanted them all to just um go in and and read read the description of the script and bring what they have to the table occasionally i think in the script i did call out a name or two but it wasn't for a motto it was just just to give them a sense of of where, where you know where these people are might be um similar to but i'm a big believer in letting the talent bring whatever they have to table and i and I wasn't locked in. I mean, I had character descriptions, but I was not locked into them 100% because I prefer the personality of the performer to come through uh, its natural in its natural essence. As far you know, as long as it's parallel with the with the role of the character, I just think it makes the performer a little more relaxed. And and I think it's uh, it's just uh, you're not fighting trying to change them from being who they are. Yeah, keep that through every project that you do because it's. It's so beneficial to have an actor that can not improvise, but sort of bring to life or add something to the character that you wouldn't necessarily see or had a vision of. But, you know, a lot of people have a rigid description of what they want for characters, and they go by that without allowing the true essence of that particular actor to come through. So I, I love that you did that. That's that, that I'm sure that add, added so much more to your film than you could imagine. Yeah, and they also they occasionally came up with a line or two, and if it worked, we included it. I mean, Sid, of course, you can't hold him back. He'll always come up with something, <laughs> <laughs> and he, he certainly did. Yeah. And then, you know, Kevin Kevin Rocky had suggestions. They made Paul Stabman, they, they all did, Jewel Greenberg, uh, and uh, they were just all wonderful people. And even Toyin, when we talked about her character, um, you know, because she was, because of her situation, she wound up being homeless on the street, uh, and she fell out of the foster care system. Hmm. And we, you know, her background could have been many different things. And if, and at first I thought, you know, I'm going to give her a little uh, pipe to smoke. And my reasoning was maybe it helped to wean off any type of drug issue she had in the past. And then she said, I don't. She didn't really see the character that way. She thought this character didn't really have a drug issue, but she just came from a different place. And I thought that was cool, and, that, and we yeah. went with that. And I think it worked fine. Well, you know, something that I that I love with the script and the structure of it is you open the door and you actually entertain discussion amongst the characters be, uh, with the science, the science, religion, uh, visions, angels, essences. You have some very interesting dynamic uh, structuring going on within the story itself. Was it hard to find that balance within the characters and the story? It was because the, the last thing I want to do is make a preachy film, and, and I'm, not a, I'm not one who's an advocate of anything either way. I sort of like just to present things, you know, present these ideas and let them, you know, hit people the way they would normally hit them and let the people take what they want from it. But it was, it was a little bit of a balance, as you mentioned, because you don't want to come across too heavy in, the, in these aspects of these different things. And, again, I didn't want to lose reality too much, and I sort of always wanted to, channel that and i did do a lot of research and actually they have, there has been scientific research on what exactly is a soul and what is uh is can it be identified and no there's no conclusive evidence but there's definitely a lot of theories out there and of course there's been um a lot of research on, on odors and those aspects of science that that definitely uh, have some grounding see i just find all of that so fascinating Me too I'm just listening to you going, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, I mean, just so fascinating, Sid. But, you know, hand-in-hand hand with that, with that fascination, your visuals, your cinematography, and then your special effects um, with, your, with your layering of color, I, just absolutely beautiful. How did you design your visual tonal bandwidth of the film? 
as I keep as I keep saying, saying like a broken record, we we didn't have a lot of money. So, <laughs> but that's first, when you get the most creative. <laughs> that's true. Mm-hmm. The first thing we I wanted to do was maybe to come up with a way of getting, you know, Jack's going to see these visions, and so the visions need to look different than reality. Let's try to do as much of that in the camera as possible. So that's when I remember uh, when I when I was younger, I used to take a lot of still photography, and a lot of it involved infrared film. Kodak used to make an infrared film stock uh, for 35-millimeter steel cameras. And it was just fascinating because you could shoot reality and it looked totally different. It looked very surrealistic. Mm-hmm. So it turns out with digital cinematography, uh, it's very friendly to IR photography. And there's a way to alter the camera so that you can describe a narrow range of the IR piece of the spectrum. And you get these very strange-looking uh, landscapes, and, and people look very different in it as well. So that would be the basis of the look. So that was, there you go, you shoot, you shoot the scene and that effect is done. And then in post, we went in and we layered in the other aspects. And the way we did that was um, we would just shoot, uh, say like there's a, there's a flower giving off some fragrances. Well, the visualized fragrances, I just, basically we just shot some dry ice mm-hmm. and composited onto the, uh, onto the background that we shot an IR and then we added some color to it. I mean, because it's all just so stunning to look at, especially one of the early sequences after Jack has subjected himself to the chemical, to the experiment, and he sees the trees down the street, and every tree is a different color, and you've got little hummingbirds and birds that are giving off that dry ice, you know, odor against a color. It all, it's, as Byron said earlier, it is, it's very ethereal. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it was you know it was very cost effective to do it. Of course, it, there are very short sequences because it's still you have to pay money to come in to do the compositing and everything. So you have to keep all that within budget. And you know the film was was kind of shot classically. Most mm-hmm. of the time, the camera's on a tripod. There's maybe three handheld shots in the whole film, and we used um, a lot of uh, instead of a dolly, which requires a lot of setup time, we used a jib and. Uh, the jib was nice because it's a, it's a free-swinging arm. As long as you have a good jib operator, you can get a decent, decent result out of it. And mm-hmm. a lot of shots that may look like dollies are actually were done on the jib. So mm-hmm. that's another way we've saved time and money. And, uh, of course, we were very careful with the production sound. And, and all the sound you hear in the film, except for all the effects and everything, that was the actual production sound. So there's, those are th- three ways we're able to save money on doing the film. You got creative. Very, <laughs> very creative. creative. Is that one of the reasons you went with the Red Dragon? As one of your cameras, because of what it could do in camera for you? Yes. Uh, I, would, I had researched it for a few years, you know, the results that people were getting off the camera. And there's, de- you know, there's definitely different camps out there, obviously. And I'm not, I'll go with anything that, that does the job. I don't care what the camera is. But the Red Dragon was affordable, and it definitely delivered a really good look at that time. So that's why we went with it. And, of course, you paired that up with the, with the Leica. With the Simicron C, which that is that is a very cool little lens. I played with that at uh, NAB a few years ago, just before it was released. Hmm. It's lightweight, it's small, and it gives you a very and very cinematic. Yeah, like a glass is is some of the best glass in the world. People know that from years ago in the still world. A lot of the you know early photojournalists they shot with Leicas, mm-hmm. those stunning, beautiful black white pictures you see through their glass and. They had entered the cinema field several years ago, and they and the lenses they produced were very, very nice lenses. And the other aspect at this time, this the you know, the Dragon was one of the early large sensor cameras. So a lot of wide-angle lenses that you might want to get, like a Cook at that time, they they didn't cover the entire sensor. Right. So you, you would get a little vignetting. So the uh, Leica had two levels. They had the the high-end uh, lenses, and these were like the little more affordable lenses. These, then we rented those, and they, I mean, when we were in post, we were looking at the images. They were just edge-to-edge sharpness lines, you know, horizontal lines didn't bend. It's just, it's just beautiful optics. No, and it, it shows it in the final product. It really does. You know, uh, you're. I have to add the sound. Beyond impressed that the sound is the sound in camera that you've got. And, of course, you bring in Mitch Dorf as your sound editor and your re-recording mixer. He's got an impressive list of credits. Um, his work is very well known. Uh, as a matter 
As a matter, yes, yes, Byron, yes, he's done. <laughs> I got excited. I saw Veep. Yes, he's he's done the. <laughs> he's a re-recording mix, ADR mixer on Veep, and then he just worked with my friend Rick Roman Waugh on his new film, Shot Caller. Wow. That's gonna yeah. that's gonna be at LAFF. Uh, Wonderful. Yeah, Mitch. I, I've worked with Mitch for many. I think when Mitch was over at POP Audio, I think that uh, and they they were acquired by the new company with. Um, he. Um, I think he at one point said, "You know, Stan, you're the, you're the longest client we've had here." But he said, "Mitch, Mitch used to always mix my commercials, and we had a good rapport." You know, I'm, and I'm very open-minded. I don't care if someone's worked in video or if they've worked in television. If they have a talent, and we're doing a film, and I think that their talent could work in this, we go with it. And and he did a great job doing the mix. And a lot of the production people as well were from the um, television television world. But they adapted. They saw what we were trying to do. They got on board, and it all worked. So I'm not really prejudiced as far as what the background of someone is. I think as long as you clearly define what your project is and you know what you want to do, there's a lot of talent out there from all different disciplines that can mm-hmm. help you do it. Mm-hmm. It's all about hiring the best person for the job. <laughs> you got it. That's always my mantra. Some people don't like it, but... <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, something I found very interesting is... Your score. You use music very sparsely here. You don't. Yes. You don't go overboard with music. What was your thinking behind that? Well, the number the number one thing is always you know, does a scene need it? Uh, and there was actually there's a very big climactic moment near the uh, in the last third of the film before the end. And Noah um, Lipsey, who did the original music, he composed a beautiful um, resolution. It was, it was like a, a haunting theme that resolves itself. And when we were sweetening the, the film, uh, Mitch saw the power of the performance. He said, you know, Stan, why don't you uh, not go with the music in this one, please, even though it's a, it's a gorgeous piece of music. And we decided not to. We, you know, we, what you do is you evaluate the scene and you just decide, yeah, this is strong without it. Let's, let's uh, just use it sparsely. Yeah, I think that's something that's really, really well done with 96 Souls, Stan, is that just because you have the tools to throw in everything, including the kitchen sink, you're not. Mm-hmm. Yep, it is that old, old overused saying, less is more. Mm-hmm. Now, this, this is your first feature, correct? I've done a, I did a, uh, a feature documentary about 15 years ago. On the, it was uh, about the, uh, an aspect of the advertising industry. But this is my first uh, narrative feature, absolutely. What was the learning curve like for you, making the leap into the world of narrative feature? Uh, you know, I didn't think much of it. I just, you know, said I wanted to do this. I sat down, wrote the script, and then, you know, moved in and did it. Of course, I'm a big film lover. I've loved film all my life. I mean, I like films from the gold rush up through Tony Erdman. I mean, I've, I've seen so much, and they've all influenced me. But I would say that with this film, I mean, it's just, had a, it's just an urge I've always had is to, to make films. And so I knew I wanted to do this one day, and I finally sat down and said, okay, let me get this done. And uh, that's, that's, that's what that whole background was. So what would you say is probably the greatest thing that you learned about yourself as a director in making 96 Souls? I, I it, well, let's see. I don't know if I learned this, but it confirmed I really love doing it. <laughs> uh, especially working with the performers, that was probably the best part. They were all very uh, generous people. They were all very professional, and uh, you couldn't ask more than that. I mean, it was, and of course, working with the crew as well. It's 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 when you bring this family together. You know, if we had we did it in 23 days. We had 20 different locations. It was it was just very exciting, and I you know. If I was to do it again, I probably um, the only I told them a few people that asked me if the only thing I would do different next time is an interesting thing in the in the writing phase I would uh, have the cast come in do a table read of the script at that point and tape it and then cut it together and then rewrite based on the edited version what that the table read was and see to see if that would change anything because it might be you always learn things after you shoot something and you think okay. Maybe we could twist this or maybe go in this direction or whatever. It's so funny because that's almost the number one answer that I'll get from directors. What What would you do differently or what would you do over again? They would. They always say, if I had a table read, I would record it and go from there. It's like... Yeah. Yeah. It's, wow. it's funny. Yeah. You don't re- you realize that. You don't when you first get yeah. a table read and you hear the words come to life, you're like knocked out. You're blown away. Right. 
but sometimes it might be great to just sit down later on. And I'm not saying it would make it better. It's just that it might take you in a different direction. Or right, whatever. exactly. So, and stuff might pop out that you just didn't even knew existed in the first place. Exactly. So now the film is in theaters this Friday. At yes. the, at, in Los Angeles, I know it's at the Lemley Music Hall in Beverly Hills this Friday for your theatrical run. And it's also and it's around the country at other theaters as well. But it's also available on iTunes and Amazon, correct? Yeah, first it's on iTunes. Uh, there's, there's pre-orders up already, and then it becomes available on May 30th. But the theatrical in, in 12 cities starts on the 26th. It will be you know, in the cities for seven days. And, again, there, originally I was going to do a theatrical release earlier in the year and then wait the 90 days and then go out to um, all these streaming platforms. But, you know, this industry, you know more than I know, it's changing every few months, mm-hmm. and it just made more sense that day and date was the way to, to do this and to get the word, because you're spending a lot of time and effort getting the word out, and so why not make it all happen at the same time? And, of course, Memorial Day, Memorial Weekend, it's a holiday weekend, and people are going to be going to the movies. Yeah. Yes, I'm, ho- I'm hoping maybe they'll get bored with Baywatch and go over to the next <laughs> theater and see 96 films. <laughs> See, that's just it. You can only watch Ridiculum so long before you want something a little meatier and, and you know, for a change of pace. Yeah, Stan, thank you so much. This has been a, this has been a delight having you on the show yeah, today. Thank you so much, Stan. Well, th- thank you, Byron. Thank you, thank you, Debbie. And, and I just want to thank you also for the programs you've done about filmmaking, especially on, on the TCM network, because that's one of the most important uh, treasures we have in this country, and I hope they keep it going because there's so much film history that would be lost without TCM, and so I really applaud you for taking the time to do those things you do. Oh, well, thank you. And, you know, if you're a fan of TCM, let me just throw this out there for you. Culver City is celebrating its centennial this year, and on August 6th, Louis B. Mayer's grandniece, Alicia Mayer, is going to be doing, I'm going to be moderating with her a Q&A on the MGM legacy and the legacy of the mayor and the David O. Selznick families. Wow, oh, that's wonderful. So anybody in L.A. on August 6th, tickets are going to go on sale soon. Um, and she's going to bring family archival materials and all kinds of things. So if you love classic film, uh, that is going to be a great place to be on August 6th. So, I'll be there. Well, I, you should. You should, <laughs> Stan. Stan, again, thank you so much. 96 Souls in theaters on Friday. Thanks, Stan. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was so lovely. That was lovely, and it was interesting to hear his process in this, in his uh, his creativity in this filmmaking process. And the fact that he went through all of those IMDb profiles yeah, himself. I, I was exhausted when I heard him say that. I, was I saw the, like, the look oh, on your face said it all. <laughs> God, that's intense. It's intense. It's intense when you go through a casting process, and that's what you're faced with because it's – it becomes a numbing experience after a while if you're going through it all on mm-hmm. your own. But it also shows him. his passion and conviction that hundred percent. You got limited resources. I do this myself, yeah. or I spend money on casting and have to cut back somewhere else. Yeah, and the fact that he found and knew what what he wanted was amazing. Because usually that's that's why people will take on casting directors because they're they they sort of have an idea, but they don't know exactly what they want until it comes mm-hmm. into the room. So. And I'm sure you encounter that a lot. A lot. Yes, I do. Where they have no clue what they want. Uh, yeah, most of the time. But, you know, sometimes that adds for the um, spontaneity of the project. If you, if you come in, like I said before, if you come in with a rigid mind and saying, this is the person that I want, prototypes are good, but keeping it open enough to give it some leeway for certain actors. And that's why I'm celebrating the fact that we have so much diversity coming in films and television now, because, you know, you may have written this role for one person and someone comes in and blows you out of the water, a different ethnicity. And that's what you use because, you know, that's real life. Well, and and that's just, as I said, it should. And, you know, this has always been my mantra, Um, you know, in the 11 years or whatever we've known each other is the best person for the job, period. Yeah. That's just it. Yep. I don't care. Male, female, pink, green, Anything. Yeah. black, white, yep. green, orange. No, it's whoever is the best person for that role. Uh-huh. I agree. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. 
We're all out of time. Brian gave us our mark. We are all out of time today. That was too much fun. I could keep going. Can you believe it? <laughs> we're t- we're totally out of time today. Well, I can't thank you enough, my friend Byron Bean, for my being pleasure. here. This was so much fun. And thank you, you so I know much. you'll come back. Of course, I when will. you're in town, I know yes. you. I know you will. And of course, thanks to Stan Jacobs. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is well worth well worth going to see the film. If you're in one of the twelve cities, you can go to ninety six souls dot com, which is the film's website, and it has all the theaters listed of where you can go to the theater. But again, you wait till next week. You've got iTunes and Amazon and the streaming platforms to see it. Uh, and it is really, for filmmakers, it is well worth the watch. Yeah. Yeah. Well, until we are not here next week because it's a holiday and the radio station decided they want to take the day off. How dare they? <laughs> I know. My father's rolling over in his grave at that one. Uh, so I'll be back on June 5th. And until then, I'm Debbie Elias with Byron Bean. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 